You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, all right, I guess we can go ahead and get started. Happy to be here. Um, so starting last week and then over the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at a few scenes in the Old Testament that particularly set the gospel forth and that are particularly clear pictures of what Jesus will do at a later date. Um, this is nice for me because last time we were all together, we talked about gender fluidity. So this is an issue that's a little more in my wheelhouse. Um, <laughs> so... Um, Anyway, last week, Cameron talked about Mephibosheth, the descendant of Saul and Jonathan, who was shown grace at David's table, despite the fact that he was tied to the previous regime and uh, sort of embodied a threat in that way and also was physically handicapped and wasn't able to sort of uh, be a productive member of a society in the ancient Near East in that way, given its agrarian nature and other things. So um, today... We're going to talk about Genesis 3, so we'll bump back to the beginning. Um, And today we're going to pay special attention to Genesis 3, 1 through 7, and then 3, 21. And you should have that on the sheet that's printed front and back. Um, But before we get started, I wonder if you'd pray with me and for me real quick. Uh, Father, we come to you with our arms open. Lord, we ask you to teach us out of your word to show us who you are um, Father, we can discern little apart from your spirit in our lives, so we pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, and that we would behold wondrous things out of your word. Okay, um, amen. So, (laughs) um, great. Okay, so many of us are familiar probably to at least a certain extent with the first three chapters of Genesis, right? Even if we're chilling here today and this is your first Sunday in church, you are probably still have a mental category for what the garden episode sort of looks like, right? Whether it comes from having to read John Steinbeck in high school or pick a C.S. Lewis book, you probably know sort of what the scene in the garden um, looks like. It provides us with a sort of archetype for human experience, right? But it does a lot more than that. The first three chapters of Genesis set the groundwork for many major themes that we see develop through the rest of the canon of Scripture. Um, In the first three chapters, we see a God who who creates and who is different from his creation. He transcends it in a certain way but at the same time is also intimately involved with the day-to-day operations of his creation. And this is super, super different from every other god or deity in an ancient Near Eastern religion, right? In other sort of cultic religions in the ancient Near East, gods are confined to geographic areas, which is why you have gods of the mountain, gods of the valley, etc. Gods typically can only do one thing. We see a god in Genesis 1 through 3 who does everything, who himself is the only true God, and who is both imminent and present in his creation and is yet powerful and transcendent over it as well. Um, and that will just continue to sort of develop up through Revelation. Um, 
We also see a temple in the Garden of Eden. We see a place where God dwells with His people. The Garden of Eden has essentially three tiers to it, we're told, very similar to the outer courts, the holy and the holy of holies, in the temple and Solomon's temple in 1 Kings. And so the garden provides us as a, with a sort of template for God's desire to dwell uh, with His people. And then probably most famously or infamously, we see a perfect humanity that falls from grace and sins ripples down through the ages, afflicting humans with both an original guilt and an original sin in nature as well. Um, and that probably is the most marked piece of the biblical storyline moving forward. Um, all that said, and all that sort of given its due, in our reading of the first three chapters of Genesis, there's a tendency to sometimes skip over, not skip over, but to just sort of like read a little less carefully some of the minutia of Genesis 1 through 3. Um, and I think one thing we do that a lot with is like the theme and motif of nakedness and clothing in Genesis 3 especially, right? Um, and so I think the clothing of Adam and Eve, especially as it sort of comes to its consummation in Genesis 3.21, is a super gorgeous picture of the gospel. We're going to talk a lot about that today. Um, but we will just go ahead and sort of read the third chapter of Genesis, just sort of put it in our heads, and then we'll refer back to it as we move forward. This, again, should be on the front and back sheet that you got at the front of the door. So I'll read. You can follow along. And we'll get moving. All right. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What have you done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, 
because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The word of the Lord. Amen. Okay. This is such a sad, sad story, right? Um, Genesis chapter 2 ends with this verse, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Adam and Eve are chilling in this garden, this beautiful paradise of a garden that God has made specifically for them to live and to thrive and to flourish in. And you finish chapter 2, and if you've read the Bible before, you almost don't want to go on to chapter 3, right? Because it's like you know what's... It's like when you like watch those like romantic comedies for like a second and third time and you know the dude's about to do something ridiculous and it's like you get like really like secondhand awkward and you don't want to like watch it, except for it's like way worse here, right? So, um, you know, we have this sort of fracturing of everything. And even if you haven't read the Bible before... You know we got this much left, so something crazy's got to happen. And so, um, and then we get to Genesis three, and just the language is indicative. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, right? Something's about to go down here, right? Um, and so, I think what's what's especially difficult about this is you watch the innocence go, right? Like you read that the innocence is gone, but also Moses paints us a picture of the innocence leaving, right? Um, Let's take a look at verse 7 in chapter 3, and we'll see this super, super clearly. Um, We read, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths, right? The eyes of both are opened, and a lot of times that's language that's used in a very positive way, right? Like people oftentimes describe their conversion experiences like their eyes were opened, right? Scales fell off is an image we see on the Damascus Road with Paul. The connotation here is exactly the opposite, of course. Um, If we look at the first half of the verse we realize that now they know they're naked, right? At the end of chapter 2, they're still naked, um, but it's just sort of a a natural product of where they are. An interesting shift happens in verse 7. Nakedness is no longer a sign of innocence. It's no longer a sign of almost infancy. It's no longer a sign of, of purity and cleanliness. It's now a sign of shame, right? Adam and Eve are naked, and they know it. Their eyes have been opened. The problem here is not just that Adam and Eve want to know what good and evil is, right? It's not just that they're, like, curious about the whole, like, moral equivalency stuff, and so they go to the tree just to see what's going on, right? To a certain extent, they already know what good and evil is. God has told them, you will not eat of this tree. That's good. 
if you eat of the tree, you'll die. There's evil, right? We know good. We know evil. We know Adam is to keep and work the garden. Good. We know Adam lets the serpent into the garden. This is evil, right? And so it's not just the knowledge of good and evil that God doesn't want them to have. If that were the case, we'd have to ditch the whole book of Proverbs. The problem is Adam and Eve are seeking to define good and evil for themselves. By eating of the tree, they're telling God, you have told us this is evil and this stuff over here is good. We believe that this is good and the other stuff is evil. And so we have constructed our own reality and in trying to usurp God's authority in discriminating between right and wrong, Adam and Eve have tried to do a job that's not theirs to do. Um, Herman Bovink, the great Dutch Reformed theologian, says this about the garden episode. By violating the command of God and eating of the tree, they would make themselves like God in the sense that they would position themselves outside and above the law and like God, determine and judge for themselves what good and evil was. In desiring the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the couple is after the right and capacity to distinguish good and evil on one's own. Right. Discriminating between good and evil as defined by God is a priestly, kingly quality of God's people that we see throughout the Old Testament and into the New. Trying to fabricate for your own self what is good and evil is exactly the opposite, right? The Old Testament especially is fraught with examples of kings of Israel who have tried to do the same thing from Jeroboam back and forward. People put things in the high places despite the fact that God's told them not to. They commit idolatry. They marry with other folks outside of the nation of Israel. The issue is that Adam and Eve are trying to be the lords of their own lives, the masters of the, their own souls and the commanders of their fate. And that's where the problems come in, right? Um, so nakedness here moves from innocence to shame, right? Adam and Eve know they have done something wrong. And then in the second half of verse 7, they respond to this action, right? They respond to their own shame, in some type of way that says, Moses tells us, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The more I read this half of the verse in prepping for this conversation today, the more pitiful that verse reads, right? And it's not pitiful because we can look back and be like, oh, Adam and Eve, when we get to heaven, we're going to give you the third degree about why in the world you ate this fruit. It's not pitiful in that way. It's pitiful because in, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, we see ourselves doing that every day, right? I think if we're honest with ourselves, every single day we eat some type of fruit, we commit some sin, we do some wrong, and we try to sew our own fig leaves on and cover our own shame and unrighteousness, right? As we read this story, you can... Almost picture like a very young child, right? For me, this happens a lot still, even though I'm 25. It's like when they break something, like a coaster, and they know they've done wrong, and accidentally or not, either way, they get on the ground and they try to put 
this coaster back together, right? And you and everybody who's watching this go on knows that this glass or whatever it is that's been broken is not going back together unless, one, Jesus comes back right then, or two, the nurse from Harry Potter who regrows his bones comes through the door. And so... Or someone has a bottle of super glue on. Yeah, well, even then, you know, like little pieces break off and you just, you know that's not going back together and it's kind of sad to watch. Um, that's exactly what's happening here. Adam and Eve, in making for themselves loincloths, have realized that they have broken something. And they're trying to put it back together. They know, they're aware that they're naked. They feel shame. They're trying to cover that shame with their own works. They're trying to do something on their own to cover all this shame and unrighteousness. We see, I think when we're honest, a lot of ourselves in this story. When we sin, when we fall, when we make a mistake, our first reflex often isn't to seek the Lord, right? Our first instinct, like Adam and Eve, is to hide. And when the Lord says, where are you? We respond by saying, I was afraid. But I have made for myself this nice loincloth out of these fig leaves. So, um, and... Not only is it to hide, it's to try to cover our sin or our shame with our own religiosity, our own good works, right? I know, like for me, whenever I commit some sin or like whenever we as Christians commit that that one sin that you know in your life that just feels heavy, like when you do it and, and you run from the Lord and... You try to construct a loincloth out of the most bizarre stuff, right? Like you sit there and you think, well, I'll just read my Bible extra hard this week, right? Or maybe I'll go two days at a time in the reading plan or I'll, you know, on the way to work, instead of listening to the round table, I'll just pray the whole time instead. <laughs> um, you know, that, that doesn't work. When we try to fashion our own loincloths like that, it always fails. Our own works, our own religiosity, our own anything that we can offer to God, none of that can atone for sin. And none of it does atone for sin. Our self-righteous efforts to fashion for ourselves fig leaf loincloths will always fail. Um, And this is great news, believe it or not. We're going to get to that a little bit later, but that's great news for us. Um, So after verse 7, we're kind of left in this place where, you know, we're feeling some kind of way about Adam and Eve. They've recognized their shame. They're trying to cover their shame. And then we move into this sort of like fulcrum of the book of Genesis almost here, where God condemns sin in probably one of the starkest ways in the book. And there's this, it's like in a movie where there's a big explosion in the foreground, but something little is happening in the background. You just don't see it because this like crazy stuff is happening in the foreground. God curses the serpent. And then we have the first gospel in Genesis 3.15. Um, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Um, so there's a nice messianic prophecy for us. Um, and then we have curses of the woman and curses of Adam. A lot's ha- like big stuff is happening here. We almost forget that Adam and Eve are still hanging out in their loincloths. You know, like... They've been caught red-handed, and here they are, you know, emperors with no clothes, essentially. But then we come back in verse 21, 
And Moses tells us, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is crazy. Um, They've tried to cover their own shame, Adam and Eve. It hasn't worked so far, right? They know they're still um, shamed. And after they've tried to clothe themselves, the Lord has still cursed Adam. He's still cursed Eve. And he has still cursed the serpent, rightfully so. Um, But God comes to Adam and Eve and clothes them with animal skin. And so, a few things probably worth observing here. First, ultimately it's God who has to cover our shame. Right? It is not us who can construct a loincloth out of fig leaves or, you know, Michael Kors or whatever. Nothing will work. It has to be God come to us and say, I will work for you. I will cover your Shame. Um, we can't do it on our own with any amount of religiosity or works or prayers. It has to be God who acts on our behalf. Second, in order to be clothed in an animal skin, something has to die. And so we see here something has to, to be killed in the place of Adam and Eve. Sin has to be punished in some type of way. Right. It doesn't take even a cursory read of Leviticus or even Hebrews to see that blood must be shed to atone for sin. And we see a first picture of that here. Um, So in order for Adam and Eve to have right standing before God, they have to be clothed in a sacrifice, essentially. Um, And this clothing that they're given is indicative of their own standing before the Lord. If you look on this second sheet that you have, we have a few verses here that sort of establish for us this biblical idea of clothing. And in Genesis 35, we read, Jacob says to his household and all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves and change your garments. Right? God says, you're not among the foreign gods anymore put on clean garments that signify the relationship you have with me, the one holy God of Israel, right? So this clothing is sort of indicator of who the people belong to, right? It's almost like a stamp that goes on to the people. Um, And then we see more of the same in Exodus 19. We read, The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. And be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain and to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. So it's not just that the garments are a stamp of who the people belong to you, right? They become a stamp of of the holiness of God. They reflect who God is to these people. We see a similar deal in the garden with Adam and Eve, right? God has said, I will come to you and I will cover this sin. I'll give you animal skins to cover this shame. Probably the one of the more you know, 
a similar passage in Zechariah 3, 3 through 5, tells us, Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And I mean, like, this is the gospel if you ever seen it right here. This is sin, filthy garments being taken away from somebody and clean ones being placed on them, right? And this now is not only a symbol of who you serve, it is now a symbol of how God sees you, right? When God looks at Joshua in this passage, he doesn't see the filthy garments anymore. He sees only the pure white vestments. And so... It's obviously not a coincidence that so many years later, the same God who provided Adam and Eve with clothing to cover their shame is himself shamed, right? Lots are cast for this God's clothing, right? And he is cursed that we might put on the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul tells us in Romans 13. So, in a sense, Christ becomes the animal out of which those first garments are fashioned all those years ago in, uh, in the garden. And it's Christ who has to be disrobed and shamed so that the high priests of Exodus 28 and Leviticus 16 can be clothed in glorious attire, which not just covers up nakedness, but also clothes in dignity and splendor, right? It's Christ, ultimately, who gives up his clothing and his life so that our shame might be covered and so that we might have life and have it to the full. Um, so, as we conclude, we have just probably a few takeaways, and then we can chat a little bit, or you can get a jump on going to get your kids, or however we want to play that. Um, first, the gospel in Genesis 3, and in general, it exposes us, right? It shows us our shame and nakedness. It shows us how filthy and how sinful we really are, right? And I think on our best days, when we're most honest with ourselves, we're happy to say that we're probably as bad as we can imagine, maybe a little worse. And so um, the gospel exposes us. And second, in doing the first, in exposing us, the gospel makes clear that we ourselves have nothing to bring to the table, right? It makes clear um, that we cannot come to the Lord in some fig leaf loincloths and that be okay, right? It exposes not only who we are, but it exposes our need for something else. And third, and most importantly, it shows us that our shame and nakedness, if we are joined to Christ, is no longer ours to bear, right? He has made a once-for-all oblation for sins, and that oblation is yours, and it is mine, and it is ours. Um, and like I said earlier, this is great news that we can't come to the Lord with these handmade loincloths, right? It's great news because if Christ is the one saving folks, if Paul is right in Galatians 3.27 when he says, for as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, if that's the truth, there's nothing we can do to take off Christ, right? If this is the case that we cannot 
come to the Lord in our own loincloths, it's also the case that it's not our responsibility to keep the loincloths trimmed up and to water them and, and to make sure they're in good shape all the time when we come to the Lord. If Christ is the one who draws us to him and who puts himself on us, who takes our infinite debt and places on us pure white vestments, if that's the case, and you could do nothing to gain Christ, you could do nothing to lose him. For after he's clothed us with himself, he will not let us escape, right? As John tells us in John 10, 28 and change. Um, so that's the gospel of clothing. Y'all can take me to New York Fashion Week if you want to. Um, any questions or anything? I think we got about five minutes before everything lets out. So, yes, ma'am. Sure. Right. So um, the words in Hebrew that are used in God's commission to Adam and Eve to work and keep the garden are the same words that are used when the Levitical priests in Leviticus are charged to work and keep the temple. Translated a little differently, but it's the same word in the original language. And so the idea there is that within the garden, this is sort of a realm for Adam and Eve to subdue right, and to multiply, etc., etc., and upon letting the serpent in, they failed to do that because the serpent has come in, and ideally, as soon as he says, did God really say, that's Adam, who was standing right there, it's time to say, you know, to cast him out of the garden, whatever that looks like. Um, And so, in the commitment and the commandment to work and keep the garden, it was Adam's responsibility especially as probably the first king of anywhere to say to the serpent, you need to leave or I will help you leave, essentially. Does that make sense? Is that, does that answer your question? Sure. Yeah. Into the water, and then when you come out of the water, you put off brand new clothes. Mm-hmm. Thinking about how that kind of relates to Judaism yeah. and Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. No doubt. Yes, ma'am. Uh, when Jesus was uh, walking to the cross, mm-hmm. they took his robe off him. That's right. Isn't it interesting that in mocking Jesus for being the king of the Jews, there, like there's an interesting dramatic irony there in that Jesus is actually not only the king of the Jews, but the king of all creation. The clothing motif is interesting because even though his robes are put on in sarcasm and taken off in shame, when Jesus comes back, he'll be clothed in royal kingly attire. And the soldiers cast lots. They did. That's right. Uh, I think going back to um, uh, back to the comment Taylor had about ritual baths, mm-hmm. 
that in, you know, in John 2, the, when Jesus turns water into wine, that you know, part of the big significance of that story is they take the jars that were used mm-hmm. for ritual cleansing, and Jesus takes water from those jars and turns it into wine. Mm-hmm. So that signifies the, the move from the Old Covenant where you're repeatedly having to be cleansed over and yeah. over to the New Covenant where Jesus, one sacrifice for forgiveness of sins, makes you a better covenant. That's right. Man, that's a good word. That'll preach right there. <laughs> yes. That's really your wife. That's really your wife's word. <laughs> Come again? Yeah. Those were rags. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He started out with rags. The starting at 12, first thing he does is sell them to pull them out. Flames are. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that is crazy. Good deal. Um, if there are none else, we'll pray, and then we can roll on. Um, but thank you all for coming. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your questions. I appreciate it. Um, Next week will be um, the esteemed intern, Matt Harris. He'll be talking on uh, Book of Ruth. Yeah, for sure. Don't want to miss that. Um, good deal. All right, well, let's pray real quick. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the chance to open up your word and uh, to not only see us as we really are, but to see us as you really are and as those whom you have made us, clothing us in Christ's righteousness and um, putting Christ on us, saving us once and for all. Um, Lord, we are, are grateful for that. We ask that you would continue to set this truth down in our hearts as we move forward into the week, months, and years ahead, Lord. Um, in your Son, Jesus Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.